Well, happy Christmas, everyone, from Scrooge. <laughs> and from me, Father Christmas, with my tree. Looking very smart. I thought you might wear some reindeer glasses or something. Well, actually, do you want a quick tour of the grotto? Since, you know, yes. I've gone to yes. the trouble. Entirely for the uh, viewers. A little, the bar's all lit up. Oh, gosh. Lights yes. everywhere. It's all very festive here. Do you have reindeers jumping up and down outside? We have some lights outside, not reindeers. Not right. Reindeers. So, yeah, here we are. Um, uh, a sort of unannounced Christmas special for our subscribers. Un- unannounced, unplanned, and hopefully not unappreciated. Happy to Christmas. cheer up your Christmas Day. We're, 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 the, we're the, the warm-up act for the King's Speech. Yeah, well, uh, we are. Or whatever, whatever you have in the part of the world where you're watching or listening to this. So, yeah, well, we thought we'd end, end our year with a surprise Christmas special and a bit of a chat. Um, yes, anybody... talking about some of the things that we've been discussing this year, talking about how we got into researching, what we feel is important, um, and really talking about how the listeners have have really come on board in the last few months, and we're getting a lot of very helpful feedback and very um, very grateful for it. Yeah, you know, we spent such a lot of time. People will remember kind of cajoling and begging people to subscribe because we needed to get to a thousand. Well, I think we're nearly at three um, yeah. now, which is not enough actually to really break out of the little sort of ghetto that we're in on YouTube. But it's. Uh, it's so much more than we had, and we really do appreciate the people who've subscribed. And some of you seem very engaged. Lots of comments, lots of regular commentators. I don't know. I think we should do our favourite and least favourite comments of, of the year. What do you say, Andrew? Yes, of course. Yeah, my favourite is not your usual kind of rubbish. <laughs> I think my favourite has to be just bollocks. Somebody just <laughs> watched, watched the whole programme and wanted to sum up what they thought of us in a single word, and that word was a fine Anglo-Saxon term. And oh, the guy who said that he, listening to us reminded him of untrimmed nose hair and stained corduroy trousers. <laughs> I took that very personally. Oh, that was you. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you took that on. And a laughable bunch of lefties, which is yes. Well, I've never been called that before. So yeah. Um, overgrown schoolboys. Well, I, I I plead guilty to that. Definitely. Infantile. Infantile. But the Madeline Johnson, if you're still with us, Madeline, you said the nicest thing, which I'm going to repeat. I said it once already a few weeks ago, that she was pleasantly disappointed with this podcast because of the title. She expected something salacious, but instead she found something that had a lovely tone and a humanity, fairness, deep analysis, which is a really great brand. So that's really what we're trying to hang on to. Yes, and I think we'll have more of that in 2024. I mean, you may think we only do royals and paedophilia, but we 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 are going to branch out in 2024 with, uh, I think, the Harry Oakes murder is one of the first ones. Uh, we're going to be looking at the blood scandal. Um, I think we're keen to have an Australian story. Um, we've got, hopefully, Tom Bauer and Tina Brown coming to talk about researching books. Yep. Uh, yes, I mean, we did, uh, we did actually manage to combine royals and paedophilia in the same programme once. Which was uh, your, your great work. <laughs> my speciality, right? Yeah. Well, actually, that leads me to asking you. You know, we followed your, you know, a few months ago. It was Lowniegate. You know, you were a front page story. The, the surveillance of you, the refusal to give you the documents that you are, as a taxpayer, very much entitled to, and all your legal struggles. Any more updates on that? Well, the story goes on. I mean, I had a piece in the mail um, 
just before Christmas, uh, which looked at the problems I had researching uh, Prince Andrew, uh, and also had a piece of something called Declassified about the more general problems of dealing with FOI, and indeed uh, a piece in Index on Censorship against, about the needs for reform of the FOI. Um, but my Mountbatten case, uh, for those who don't know, I was seeking access to the personal diaries and letters of Lord and Lady Mountbatten, which had been bought with public monies to be seen. And that case uh, was in 2021. It led to the release, biggest ever release of FOI material, 33,000 pages. And, and that case is still rumbling on. I'm still determined to get the correspondence between Nehru and Edwina, which I think would shed a lot of light on Indian independence. But um, there are one or two uh, things happening. Funny enough, with a judge, uh, Brian Kennedy, who uh, is uh, asking for certain things to be looked at again. And he's the judge, of course, with our Andy Webb and Bashir case, who has uh, asked the BBC to produce more material, which they claimed that they didn't have or wouldn't release. And the post office scandal is now a TV series. So a lot of these issues we've been looking at are, are back in the news, which which is good. Yeah, it is good. Actually, you know, the Andrew and Fergie program we did, I think is is it third or fourth most popular we ever made? It was just you and I talking. And it's just you really revealing the research you're doing for your Andrew and Fergie book. Um and again, I think you found it really hard to get access to things that should absolutely be in the public domain. Am I right? I mean, this is the the trade missions of Prince Andrew, which we all paid for. And who knows what he was really doing on them and who was really benefiting from them. And uh, have you made any more progress with that? Well, no, I haven't. I've been going round and round circles with government departments. Uh, so the Trade Department and the Foreign Office who were responsible for these trips over a period of 10 years don't seem to have any documents relating to them. They can't uh, even tell me where they might be. Uh, they should. Some of them should be in the National Archives. Uh, I can't get any information on the Royal Flight. The cabinet office don't seem to have any information. Uh, so everywhere one goes, no one can identify anything for this period. Uh, and as you say, Phil, he was a government service paid for by the taxpayer. And there are big questions about who were on these trips and what they were doing. Uh, so we don't even know who were on these trips. That's, that's a sort of secret. So one does sort of wonder whether there's a sense that you know the royal family are above the law. And of course, the Retropolitan Police have refused to talk about the cost of his protection, even after he stopped being a member of the royal family. Uh, the logs for the night when he claimed to be staying in Windsor after he may have slept with Virginia Jeffrey, those logs have been destroyed. Uh, other logs, they're refusing to deny or confirm whether they hold. So, you know, one. I think they're just hoping one will go away, which I'm not going to. And they themselves, both the Duke and Duchess of York, have said that they have told their friends not to cooperate with me, which is a shame because I would have thought friends might actually say some rather complimentary things that would be useful to stick in a book. So um, I have got a lot of new stuff, uh, and um, but it does mean the book probably won't be out next year. It'll be 2025. Uh, lots of little rabbit heart warrens to, to go down. And how are you getting on with your book? Well, it'll be competing with you, I think. It's um, coming on. My book about the end of the Second World War is scheduled to come out March, April 2025, which will be oh, right. the 80th anniversary. <clears throat> so I've got a few more months yet to write the thing. Um, and then, yeah, get it edited, get it packaged, get it promoted. Are you, are you finding some new things there or you've got a new interpretation? 
Well, I, it's probably not the sort of stuff that people listening to this podcast would be very interested in, but yes, I have actually. I've got a, I haven't settled on a title, but I might call it The Bitter End because some of the things, certainly in the Far East um, and in India that I'm finding out about and stories that I'm going to be telling are very fresh. And sometimes they really do cut against the official propaganda of the time. I'm not writing a sour book. I don't want to make the case that, you know, we were on the wrong side of the Second World War. Of course we weren't. And there'd be lots of very positive things in it. But at the margins, there were some very dark and pleasant things happened. Lots of betrayals, lots of promises that weren't kept, and lots of problems that were sort of shunted into the future. Um, for example, you know, don't want to get into it now, but the Vietnam War, for example, two Vietnam Wars actually that happened in the 50s and 60s could probably have been avoided if Britain and France had, had actually kept promises they'd made while fighting Japan. But that's a, a conversation. Gosh, for, well, that's for a another big story. Time. Yeah, well, we must definitely talk about that. There's lots of great stuff. I thought it might might be fun to talk about, we could maybe pick one show each of the shows we've made that didn't get a big audience, but if anybody's listening and wants to try it, we think is slightly sort of underappreciated. And I would say, actually, that conversation we had with Giles Milton. Yes, fascinating. Hasn't drawn a huge crowd, but was so interesting. Yes, absolutely. And I think there's still, I mean, that's a, you know, classic, uh, program for us, a cover up, uh, a scandal at the time. Uh, it's one of the great mysteries of, of the, the post second world war period. Uh, and of course links into Mountbatten. So I'm rather interested in it. Uh, but I agree. I think it's a shame because I think he made a six part series uh, on it, which was, I think, a bestseller. Um, so. Uh, it is perplexing. I mean, one of the ones I really liked, which is very much off our track, was the mudlarking. Uh, oh, yes. And um, it was a bit of a bit of a, a different subject for us. But I thought that was rather fascinating. Just the things that you can find, literally going on along the sea, along the along the Thames at uh, low tide, um, extraordinary things going back centuries, uh, and the way it's regulated, uh, and how people can learn from the things found there, a new assessment, for example, I think of medical care uh, in the, the 17th century, 18th century. Absolutely. So I, and uh, if you've not seen that one, it's and, and if you'd like to see Andrew holding an object that's probably been into the bottom of a 16th century gentleman, it's worth it just for that. <laughs> um, oh, that's, that's, you know, it's been a great year. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversations. I've felt that meeting some of these people for the first time online then occasionally in real life, has really added a lot to my life and my knowledge of things. And um, I think I mentioned Laura, Tom- Laura Thompson, who did two wonderful shows. Such a wonderful, lovely person to talk to. She talked to us about Lord Lucan, about the Mitfords. She recently came to the library that my wife manages in Putney, did a fantastic talk on Agatha Christie. So I definitely want to get her back. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think we, we want this sense, and I think we wonder if people like this, of having a certain number of, of writers come back because you've written lots of different books uh, and create more of a sense of family atmosphere. Um, Community. Gerald Posner, in his case, has written a lot. Robin Watts, one, and, and, and Andy Summers have done a lot. Yes, indeed. Um, and uh, Andrew Morton clearly has done a lot of books. So, yeah, people that you feel we should have back on other subjects, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and I think I, I was telling you, Phil, that there is a, a TV documentary coming up. They claim to have found Lord Lucan as a Buddhist monk in Australia. <laughs> Not so again. You, but, we must put that. Well, there was a there was a jungle gym, wasn't there, at one point? So we must put that to Laura. Um, okay, yes, we must. I'm sure she will raise her eyebrows. Um, <laughs> one eyebrow. 
Well, uh, you said um, just for this special, I could ask you a few things about something I've actually wanted to for some time. We've never oh, really got around to doing it. doesn't naturally fit into any of our programs so far. But um, all the work you've done on the Duke of Windsor, you know, we've talked about his dodgy political connections and how he was um, flirting, more than flirting, with the Nazis in the early years of the Second World War. We've never really talked about Wallace. I know a lot of people, I am one of them, find her completely enigmatic as a historical character. Yes, she is. More time than most looking into her life. Uh, I'd just love, you know, for a few minutes to find out what you actually think of her. Well, I mean, I, I, I think she is a very complex figure. She's someone who kept very much everything to herself. She was an only child. I think she felt very sort of betrayed by a whole series of things that happened in her youth. Her father died when she was six months old. She was brought up in genteel poverty. And the uncle, maternal, the paternal uncle who brought her up was in love with her, her mother, which caused problems. And in fact, she was, in effect, disinherited by him when she refused to, to, to take sides. Uh, and she, she vowed really as a young woman that she would be basically take control of her own life. She married very young, this man called Wynne Spencer, who was a, a quite a, 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 a distinguished American pilot, but he was a drunk. Did she marry for love? Was it a, a true kind well, of romance? I think she did at the time, and then discovered that you know he was this this drunk uh, Peter Rupp. Um, we have to rely slightly on her stories, I and mean, one of her stories is that he locked her in the bathroom. Well, most bathrooms lock from the inside rather than the outside, so you've got to sometimes wonder if her stories are true. But it was a sad story, and I think what I tried to show in Trinity King was that the the so-called love relationship of the century with the Duke of Windsor was nothing, was not really that. That She was basically emotionally blackmailed into marrying him. He threatened to kill himself. That the real love of her life was a man called Herman Rogers, who was at the next door estate to Roosevelt at Hyde Park, who was a great friend of hers. In fact, she offered to have a child with at one point. Uh, and she sort of had this life sentence with this boy, uh, the Duke of Windsor, uh, and she realised that having divorced two husbands, she couldn't really, you know, do it a third time. And I think that's why you get this this frenetic energy with her uh, and this desire to fill all her time. In some ways, I think it's a sad story. She she showed during her time in the Bahamas that she could be a very effective governor's wife, actually had a very uh, big heart, and she dealt with a lot of social problems there. Uh, and I think Did she, she have any effect on his politics? Was she in any way involved with the, the flirtation with Hitler and the Nazis? Yes, I think she was sympathetic. Uh, um, and certainly the Germans had targeted her. They, they sent a German spy called Stephanie von Hollenhout into the next door apartment in Bryanston Square um, to, to, to work on her and threw her on the, on the king. Uh, she supposedly, everyone denies that she had this relationship with Ribbentrop, but uh, a lecturing on a cruise liner recently, someone came up to at the end and said, I'm Ribbentrop's chauffeur's grandson. And uh, he says they were always meeting. So that's a good case where the written archives are perhaps gone, but the oral testimony is there. But yeah, she's some of people feel very strongly about. There are certain authors who are very, very pro Wallace, not many who are pro him. Uh, and, um, well, they, not everybody has a, a, a king emperor give up his throne for the love of them, which is you know quite a claim. Whether or not the love was was real, or she felt slightly coerced or emotionally blackmailed, it was an astonishing thing for anybody to do for anybody else. 
Yeah, well, he was. I think he was sort of maneuvered off the throne, but it was a sort of mummy relationship, which a lot of the royals have. Um, and you know, he talked to her in baby language. In fact, she bossed him around. Uh, and the more she bossed him around and actually was unpleasant to him, the more he liked it, even being humiliated in public, cuckolded in public with with people like Jimmy Donahue. Uh, and it's interesting that uh, Andrew Morton in his book on Wallace talks about her having a sadomasochistic relationship with uh, Wynne Spencer, the first husband. Um, but she played the submissive role there, whereas with Edward, she played the much more dominant role. Gosh. Uh, so there, there's some very interesting sort of psychosexual elements to that relationship. But yes, clearly she was a very witty character, um, a very good hostess. Uh, and, you know, people um, seem to like her. I mean, there were again contradictory reports. She seems to be awful to the members of staff. And some of the sort of people who hung around her were sort of cafe society. But, uh, it, it, you know, she is an enigmatic figure and every book seems to be different about her. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, of course, she had that very sad period at the end of her life when she was sort of locked away in a corner of the house. Uh, bits of furniture were being sold that she didn't realise downstairs to either pay medical bills or possibly to lie in people's pockets. Uh, all her friends were cut off from her and she was suffering from dementia. Um, and she lived on from 72 to 86 in this sort of um, vegetative um, situation. So it, it's and did the royal the royal family because were were famously um, inflexible and tough at freezing her out. Did they, in those sad final years were there any generous gestures or anything? Well, no, sadly. I mean, the Queen came to see the Duke just before he died in May seventy two, partly to pay respects, partly to, uh, I think, just persuade him to pass on certain artifacts, garter robes, and things like that. Uh, but when she she had this long period, they really had no contact with her at all. Uh, and I'm amazed, for example, when they were selling off uh, various um, uh, artifacts, the abdicate table where he signed the abdication actually was sold. It didn't go back to the royal family. So there's, there's some very strange things going on. Mount Batten was always turning up in this period and and trying to persuade her to leave everything to to the royal family and to set up a trust with King Charles. Uh, and eventually he was banned because he upset her so much. So there, there were some strange things going on behind the scenes. They said that three lorry loads of material was taken to Windsor after um, her death, or after the, after the Duke's death, actually. And none of that stuff has ever emerged. So we don't know what it was. Uh, and, of course, there's the great debate about the jewels. There's the famous jewellery um, uh, sale just after her death. And the debate is whether... Uh, the jewels that were sold there were fakes and replicas that they'd used after an insurance, after a, a, I'd never a heard of this in 1946, or indeed that they had uh, claimed to be uh, robbed in 1946, the Ednam Lodge robbery, and in fact the jewels had never gone. So there are a lot of a lot of stories still to be settled, uh, and the extraordinary thing is there's still people around who knew them. Uh, you know, Nikki Haslam, who uh, is uh, a sort of well-known socialite here in Britain, uh, knew them in the 1960s in New York, as one called Sarah Morrison, who actually lodged with them in the 1940s in Paris. So there are people, the night nurse who was there when the Duke died, Julie Chattar, again, is still alive. 
But I agree, she is a fascinating character, and we've had you know lots and lots of books, many more books about her than in fact about the Duke. Uh, and as you say, she had this extraordinary impact on history. Uh, I mean, you can think of very did, few. Did women. you find yourself liking her? I mean, I think the story you told before about how she didn't really kind of give bring much comfort to him when he was on his deathbed made her seem like a very cold person. Yes, I think she was. I mean, I think she felt very guilty about him. Um, but I think by the stage, by 1972, I think she was pretty fed up. And again, we have contradictory reports. Julie Chateau says that she never once visited him in the last two weeks of his life. Uh, others say that he died in her arms. You know, so trying to separate the myth and the reality is very difficult with contradictory reports from people often who were there at the same time. But no, I didn't really warm to her. I didn't, I'd, I'd like to. I mean, it's very difficult to write books about people you don't warm to or at least empathize with in some respects. And it's always, of course, yes. a problem with people reading. They've got to have at least have some interest in the person. Well, that's what that, another great program that didn't get the numbers it deserved was uh, Randy Tarabarelli. Remember yeah. him? And what, yes. He must be one of the most successful writers in the world, of certainly biographers in the world. And he was very warm, wasn't he? <clears throat> he sort of said he, he needed to like the people he wrote about. And sometimes when he found things out that were kind of unpleasant, he, did, he didn't put them in because he didn't yep. want to burst the bubble uh, to make the reader feel uncomfortable or indeed himself as the writer. I thought that was really interesting. Yes, well, he clearly knows his market, you know, and, um, I mean, he's very, very successful. I was amazed because, I mean, a big subject um, with Jackie Kennedy – but, I, you know, clearly we all have a responsibility not to needlessly upset the family uh, or to deal deal in tittle-tattle. But I think we do have also a responsibility to try and tell the truth as we see it of people. And clearly we see different things and choose to emphasise different aspects of their character. But, yeah, I found Wallace a very difficult subject to sympathise with. I mean, all the reports I read from biographers, people who uh, were her ghostwriters, members of staff, or even her friends – we're all pretty critical. Um, I mean, she was mean. Uh, she was very demanding. Uh, she was dishonest in many respects. I mean, taking furniture, uh, taking clothes and jewels from people to promote them and then not returning them. Um, but I think also very unhappy woman. And this was a problem with the jewels. A lot of the jewels uh, that were recovered at the end of her life, they'd never been bought. Um, they'd been given. So like, a, like an Instagram back. influencer, she would be given a lovely dress to wear at some grand event and then just forget to give it back. Yes, exactly. Or a yeah. tiara or something. And, and I mean, one of the estimates, uh, there's a man called um, Richard Wallace, who's got a book on the jewels coming up in a few months' time. Uh, he estimates that two-thirds of the jewels disappeared, were not in the sale. Wow. Uh, and the big debates, for example, about Queen Alexandra's jewels uh, because that was one of the great concerns. He was giving away what they saw as the family jewels to to a Wallace. And so lots of things were going out of the family. Um, and, you know, who knows what, what, you know, what, what was sold. I mean, one of the interesting things would be to see what has popped up in sales ever since, uh, because a lot of stuff just went missing. Gosh. So it is, I mean, I'm sure there are going to be lots more books on Wallace uh, and, you know, one hopes there may be more now that uh, Al-Fayed is dead. Maybe some people will come forward and say things. Fayed, of course, bought the house in the Bois de Boulogne. Uh, and many of the artefacts, many of the things in the house, in return for doing it up. And now that he's dead, maybe people will be able to say things they didn't feel they could say when he was alive. I enjoyed that conversation we had about Al-Fayed. 
In fact, that's one of the things we've done this year that slightly surprised me in that, you know, we have actually sometimes approached subjects from two multiple perspectives. Yep. You know, we've had some very positive things about Meghan and Harry and some very negative things. We've had Michael Cole talking about Al-Fide in a way I'd never really heard before. No. Um, as, a, as a generous, as a, a witty, as a kind man, of course, people then come up in the comments and say, well, okay, but he was accused of all sorts of things. Um, and, you know, you have to take what Michael Cole says with a certain amount of scepticism because he worked for him. But it's great to get those perspectives. And, and you know, the fact that we have a, you know, an unlimited amount of airtime to play with, as opposed to, say, broadcast channel, is that we can actually explore them, all those different attitudes and those different views. I agree. Well, I mean, also that. the two sides to the diner death, you know. Yes. Um, and I think that is very interesting. And I think, you know, we, we can do that with other subjects that come up or other perspectives or wait to see what people's comments are. But, yeah, I think there is no there is no one line that can be taken on any of these things. We, we all discover new things. Uh, and that's one of the joys that each generation rediscovers a subject. Yes, so please keep in touch with us. I hope you've enjoyed our little Christmas half-hour treat. We thought we'd spring upon you. <laughs> There's something to discover under your tree. Um, thank you to all the subscribers. It's been a great year. Um, and we're really looking forward to uh, spending more time with you next year. And let us know what you want us to talk about. It really, we've done four or five, haven't we, Andrew? Uh, including the most recent one on the McCann story, because people have wanted them. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, we're very much here to, because, I mean, you've certainly given us some very good ideas of things that, that, that we've learned a lot about and we might not normally have covered. Um, so we've really enjoyed it. Uh, and, um, you know, we're very grateful to you for, for all your interest and, and your feedback. Indeed. So ho, ho, ho from me. Happy Christmas to all the listeners and viewers. And here's to a scandalous 2024. Yeah. Happy Christmas from Scrooge. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Millions of snowflakes are dancing around you, kissing your cold cheeks. It's snowing here too. I wonder if all this is trying to tell me I don't belong here. I should be with you, and I promise I will. I'll make it all better. Christmas until it's a Christmas together Close your eyes, make a wish I will be on my way I miss you, my darling Oh, how can I get and stuck in the middle of nowhere Send me your kisses to bring me a sweet dream Wind on my face and the clouds fly beneath me I promise I will, I'll make it all better
It's not a Christmas until it's a Christmas together. Close your eyes, make a wish. I will be on my way. 